My name is Michael Jones. I run the YouTube channel, Inspiring Philosophy. The name of the ministry is Inspiring Philosophy Ministries. And our goal is to build an apologetic video library. So most of what we do is defending Christianity against objections, uh, atheists, other groups and such. So we have a six part series on the resurrection. Uh, we have videos on Old Testament archeology, span on New Testament reliability, defending the Trinity, arguments for God's existence from cosmology or even quantum mechanics. So most of what we do is building this apologetic video library to defend the truth of Christianity. Uh, that's a good question. How did I get into Christian apologetics? Uh, I was raised in a very fundamentalist Christian home. It really turned me off to Christianity. I used to get beat up at church. Uh, but at the same time, I used to read a lot. And so when I entered high school and when I was in the military for a little bit, I used to hear really bad objections against Christianity. Objections even I knew who didn't want Christianity to be true were horrible. And at the time I was kind of like an agnostic deist kind of person. I was never an atheist. It never made sense to me. But I started saying, okay, well, the objections against Christianity are so bad. And, and these were people who said Jesus was based off Horus. Right. So really bad arguments. Uh, those were the kind of arguments that I was being given. I thought, well, let me look at the other side. And slowly through a lot of struggles, pain, turmoil, reading, a lot of C.S. Lewis, some J.P. Holding, I eventually came back to Christianity. And so what got me interested in apologetics was just my walk to Christianity. Correct, I'm, tonight I'm arguing that evolution is compatible. Well, let me rephrase that. So I'm arguing tonight that there is a theory of evolution, because not all theories of evolution, there are multiple theories, but there is a, there is at least, there would at least be a couple of theories of evolution that are compatible with Christian doctrine. So my goal tonight is to show that you can't hold to a theory of evolution and affirm all core doctrines of Christianity. So I believe in an historical Adam and Eve. I believe there was a fall. I believe we are all descendant from Adam and Eve. So that's my goal tonight. No, it's, I, I don't think it's necessary to believe in evolution and be a Christian. I've never stated that. My position has always been is that they're compatible and that you can be. My position is, is that when we read Genesis, it's like, it's like comparing apples to oranges. They're both talking about different things. The Bible is about our relationship with God, his covenants is made with humankind, fall, redemption, that type of thing. And science is talking about another subject altogether. So of course they're perfectly compatible. Uh, but at the same time, it's not necessary. And I fully acknowledge that. It'd be like asking me, is Christianity compatible with quantum mechanics? Well, of course, there are different realms of inquiry. I think that's fair to say they're, well, I, I guess it would be kind of, it would be okay to say that they're not overlapping in that sense, yeah. Uh, that would be based on how, how I've understood Genesis from reading it uh, internally and studying the words and the Hebraic language for it, yeah. So when people come in here, I'm sure some of them might think that I'm a heretic. I get that a lot, I don't mind it. Uh, depending on which critic you're talking to, being a theistic evolutionist, I'm either, I'm either a Bible beater or an evil heathen, because I get an attack from both sides. So my goal tonight is just to help people try to understand my position better, realize that we're all Christians. I'm going to argue that I can uh, affirm all essential Christian doctrines. I don't believe Genesis is mythological, one giant metaphor. As I said, I believe in historical Adam and Eve. I even believe that the seven days in Genesis 1 are literal seven days. 
So my goal tonight is just simply to show that they're compatible. We're all Christians. We're all, even though we can have different opinions, I would try to hope people leave tonight with the idea that they may have against Calvinism and Arminianism. We, you may disagree with one of those views, but you don't think it's heretical to hold to the other view. My goal tonight is to get people to realize that they may not agree with me, maybe they will, but at least they understand we're all within orthodoxy. Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for everyone to coming. Uh, this is way bigger uh, than, than we were expecting. I apologize that uh, we've got some awkward seating for some of you guys. Um, yeah, uh, Drew Graham, who is just over there, and Nathan Visser, if you could stand as well, and myself, Kenan Benjamins, we uh, began just last summer trying and thinking of an event like this, uh, and we never saw it coming to what it would exactly be, but now we're finally here and is so happy that we can have this event. Uh, we joined together just last summer uh, with the goal of creating a club that would help us learn how to have normal conversations about even important controversial topics in a Christ-like manner. And that's conversations not with just with friends, but with people we disagree with. Um, so the, the verse that we're working out of here uh, that we found really kind of helped direct us is from 1 Peter. I'm sure many of you are familiar with it. 1 Peter 3, um, 14 through 15. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So we came to the conclusion that the best way for us to learn how to have good conversation um, about important topics in a Christ-like manner would be to host an event, host a debate, and then afterwards to foster intentional conversation amongst our audience afterwards. So I'll now begin uh, just with a formal introduction of our speakers. Um, I first want to uh, introduce uh, Michael Jones, if, if you could please stand. Uh, Michael Jones is the director uh, for the non-for-profit organization Inspiring Philosophy. Inspiring Philosophy has a very active uh, YouTube channel with over 136,000 subscribers. Uh, Michael Jones, particularly for this event um, that was noted for us, uh, has recorded an 11 video series uh, exploring Genesis 1 through 11 um, and has done extensive research on evolution and, and of course, uh, scripture and how that relates. Um, and this year, uh, I know his time has been filled and will be filled um, speaking regularly on apologetics for creation um, and talking with uh, very, and attending other debates. So if we could give him a round of applause. <laughs> and our next speaker is Reverend Dr. Joseph Boot, if you could please stand as well. Uh, Reverend Dr. Joseph Boot is the founder of the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Um, he's the founder and pastor at Westminster Chapel. He is the founder of Westminster Classical Christian Academy. Uh, he has published multiple books on worldview and apologetics. Um, 
and he uh, regularly speaks at events uh, on, on similar topics. Um, so if we could give him a round of applause as well. So now we transition into the meat of our event here. Um, we're going to be transitioning into a presentation. We're going to have a 15-minute presentation uh, from both of our speakers. Um, I, we have set 15 minutes. Uh, there can be a bit of leeway, but I ask that we do try and stick to that uh, you know, for e each speaker and also for our audience with their time. Um, and so Michael Jones will be beginning. Uh, and if you two could uh, shake hands before this. <laughs> All right, well, good evening. Glad that we got the room full. It's pretty exciting. Thanks for everyone coming out tonight. Um, I'd like to thank uh, Dr. Joe Boot for having this debate tonight and Redeemer University for flying me in for the event. Uh, tonight is a unique experience for me uh, because I'm used to debating atheists. <laughs> in fact, last month I was in Austin, Texas debating Matt Dillahunty on God's existence, but it appears that tonight I'm the radical liberal. So, as a theistic evolutionist, depending on what critic you're talking to, I'm either a Bible beater or an evil heathen, but that's okay, because I consider myself a proud theistic evolutionist, and I have no qualms about that. Uh, however, I argue I don't have to abandon any core doctrines of Christianity from that. So I affirm that Adam and Eve were real historical people, uh, I affirm that there was a real literal fall, and I affirm that every person today is a descendant from them while holding to the scientific fact that humans evolved from a common ancestor that we share with the great apes. These ideas, I'll argue, are not in conflict. Also, in the cross-examination, I hope to address the claim that the young, earth, the young Earth creationism is the simplest reading of scripture. In fact, I argue that it creates several problems in the text itself. So what I'll do is I'll focus mainly on what Genesis is saying, and I'll just let scripture interpret scripture. So, let's start with the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, the problem is, is when Genesis is translated, our English words don't always align with what the Hebrew words meant. See, Hebrew was a verb-dominated language, whereas English is more of a noun-dominated language. So, the English translation uh, makes it sound like the original authors are advocating an absolute beginning point. But many Hebraic scholars have put forward sound arguments this is not the case. So, Michael Heiser has shown that the Hebrew Masoretic vowel points and the wording of the Greek Septuagint should not contain the phrase, in the beginning. So, there's a clear lack of a definite article, and the same applies to John 1.1, mind you. So, so, the opening line of Genesis should actually be translated as, when, not in the beginning. Now, this transforms verse 1 into a dependent clause, instead of it reading as an independent clause. So, a dependent clause would be if I said, when I woke up. So you're expecting me to finish the sentence. An independent clause would be if I said, in the morning, I woke up. See, that's a complete sentence. So this means verse 1 is dependent on verse 2. So when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was formless and void. So in other words, the earth was already there, formless and void, when God begins to create. Of course, the reply is the original Hebrew didn't have vowel points, but the argument can be made without it. Sorry, I forgot to click there. So, so, for example, John Salhammer in Genesis Unbound has pointed out the Hebrew word for beginning typically refers to a duration of time rather than an absolute beginning point. The Hebrew word reshit 
which is the term for beginning used in this chapter, has a very specific sense in Scripture. In the Bible, the term always refers to an extended yet indeterminate duration of time, not a specific moment. So he draws attention to Job 8.7, which uses the same language to refer to the early time period of Job's life, or Jeremiah 28.1. Okay, this refers to the beginning period of Zedekiah's reign. Supporting the idea, Genesis 1 refers to a temporal duration instead of an absolute beginning point. Salhammer notes this supports an extended period of chaos prior to Genesis 1.1, when God shows up to transform the earth from a chaotic state to an ordered state. Second, Robert Holmstead from the University of Toronto says, an absolute beginning cannot be derived from the grammar of the verse. Instead, the syntax of the verse, based on well-attested features within biblical Hebrew grammar, dictate that there were potentially multiple periods or stages to God's creative work. And I was speaking with Homestead this morning through email. He agrees with what I'm laying out here tonight. So Homestead identifies that Genesis 1-1 has a similar grammatic structure to other verses that are restrictive relative clauses. And these types of clauses are dependent in nature. In other words, they're not a complete thought. And this means Genesis 1-1 is most likely dependent on verse 2, and is referring to a chaotic period prior to the creation week. Okay. By the way, this is the same structure we see with the beginning, starting in Genesis 2, starting in verse 4, when they introduced the Garden of Eden scene. Okay, but what about the word for create? Okay. Doesn't it say God created the heavens and the earth? Well, in English, yes, but as Homestead and other scholars have pointed out, not so much in Hebrew. So, Dr. John Walton has written extensively on this, and he notes that the Hebrew word bara. Uh, does not ever necessarily refer to material creation out of nothing. It more likely means assigning a function, ordering, organizing. So, Kenneth Matthews, another scholar, notes Barah refers to God bringing about a new activity, not necessarily a new thing. Uh, examples which show this are places like Psalm 51, where it says, Create in me a clean heart. It's not about asking for a new material heart. Isaiah 57 speaks of God assigning praise upon the lips of Israel not creating them out of nothing. Now, there are dozens of other examples I could give from the scriptures, and I will gladly later if need be. And I'm not saying Barah could never refer to material creation, but in no place does it necessarily have to. And there are times it cannot refer to that. Like there's one place where David talks about eating food, and that word is used. So this would mean Genesis 1 is saying that when God organized, assigned functions, gave new activity to the heavens and the earth, the earth was formless and void. However, not surprisingly, the words for tohu and bohu for formless and void probably don't actually mean that either. So David Samuru. So David Samuru has done a full semantic analysis on the word tohu. And his conclusion is, is that the word tohu most likely means unproductive. That's his point there. So it's used to refer to this in places like Deuteronomy, like for a wilderness, idols that accomplish nothing, a wasteland, people wandering aimlessly, or a desolate settlement. The context of how the word tohu is used seems to suggest it refers to an unproductive state or wilderness where there's no human production or ordered civilization. So, Genesis 1 only seems to be saying that before God began to cause the earth to function properly, it previously was not. It was something like an unproductive wilderness. My argument is simply this, is that Genesis 1 is not an account of the material origins of the universe. It is an account of God ordering or assigning proper functions to the cosmos for how they will operate within human cultures. Now, I could go through Genesis 1 and show how this is the case on each day, but an easier way to do this is just to show the correlations to Jeremiah 4. 
So in this passage, uh, Jeremiah is explaining what happened to the northern kingdom of Israel and is warning Judea that the same is going to happen to them if they don't shape up. But look at what he does. He says of the northern kingdom that it is tohu and bohu, words for formless and void. There is no light. There is no man, no birds of the air, no vegetation. Even the very conservative scholar and young earth creationist John MacArthur acknowledges the language here. is very similar to Genesis 1, just in reverse. So, but this is not about the material annihilation of the northern kingdom. Jeremiah is using this language to say the kingdom was once productive and is now chaotic. So if the same language is used in Genesis 1 to indicate the reverse, this would imply God simply took a chaotic planet and ordered it properly. As John Walton says, Days 1 through 3, which concerned the three core functions of the cosmos, time, weather, fecundity, would consequently be viewed as not just activity, but establishing the control attributes of the cosmos, which days 4 through 6 could be seen as determining the destinies of the functionaries within the cosmos. So, the basic argument is that Genesis 1 is a cosmic temple inauguration. God is simply establishing the cosmos as now his temple and ordering things to properly function within human cultures. This is why things are divided into seven days, which I do believe are seven literal days. But the use of seven was a typical cultural symbol for an inauguration. For example, the construction, of the, the construction of the tabernacle was completed in seven stages, ordination of a priest, seven days. Solomon's temple, constructed in seven years, dedicated to God on a seven-day festival on the seventh month, even his speech, divided into seven petitions. And we also find this motif outside of the Bible. So, the point being is the days in Genesis 1 seem to favor a more functional understanding of the whole passage. And the most likely explanation is the text is simply establishing that God is entered into the chaotic universe, gave it new activity as part of setting up the whole cosmos as his temple. Now, what about death? Young Earth advocates will always bring this up to attack theistic evolutionists. But the problem is, is there is no place in the Bible that says physical death did not exist before the fall. So Romans 5.12 is often brought up, but read just after this, where Paul says the death he is talking about reigned from Adam to Moses. Okay, this is obviously not about physical death, since people still died after Moses. This is about how we spiritually died. Humanity was exiled from Eden. Moses brought the children of Israel back into the promised land where the presence of God was. Okay? Later in the chapter, Paul contrasts life with the grace found in Christ and death with condemnation. Are we supposed to think that uh, life in verse 18 means physical life? Well, probably not. It's spiritual life. So this is about when humanity spiritually fell, not when physical death entered the world. Now, what about 1 Corinthians 15.22? Now, I do think this is about physical death. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Well, this isn't an issue for theistic evolution, since Paul is using the same context that we have, namely Genesis 3 for what it means when he says we all die in Adam, which simply means we are being, we cut, cut off from the tree of life. So let's remember what Genesis 3 says. It never says that Adam's body was changed from immortal into immortal. So what it basically says is, you know, God curses the ground, not them, and then he just exiles them so they can't have access to the tree of life. So, so what does it mean to die in Adam? It means our first priest failed and broke the covenant, losing access to the tree that granted immortality. Compared to this, we are now all made alive in Christ. Our new priest, who did succeed and, is granted and will grant us access to immortality in the resurrection to come. The evidence just indicates Adam was always mortal, 
and was only allowed to be immortal by eating from the tree of life. Notice what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15. So, in explaining Christ's resurrected body, he compares it to Adam's body, the type of body we all have now, which is corruptible, immortal, and must be changed, to the new body we will receive, which will be immortal and imperishable. So Paul seems to teach Adam to not have an immortal body like Christ. The implication that Paul is telling us, as Joshua John Van E notes, is that Adam, as created, needed a change to inherit the kingdom of God. Now, as I said, I believe in an historical Adam and Eve. Essentially, I would argue Genesis is more about when Adam and Eve were elected to be our first priests of creation, just like God elected Abraham or elected Israel. The same process applied to them. In fact, uh, the scholar Michael Heiser has pointed out the language of Genesis 1 regarding the Imago Dei, the image of God, uh, is very verb-dominated and is more about calling man to image God or to be his imagers. But I still argue we are still descended from these two people. So how does that work? Well, just this past couple months, Dr. Joshua Swamidas just came out with a book where he's demonstrated through computer models and genetic studies the most recent common ancestor of all humans by 1 AD would have lived just a few thousand years ago. So he argues that it can be easily shown all people today would be genealogically, keyword genealogically connected, to one couple in the Middle East just a few thousand years ago. So everyone alive today, due to cross-cultural interbreeding, are all related and share the same common ancestors. So because of this, we can hold to an evolutionary account and believe we all descended from Adam and Eve. Now, this obviously doesn't mean every human that existed descended from Adam and Eve. But scripture never claims that, and the Bible does leave open the possibility there could have been other humans outside of the garden that their descendant, that Adam and Eve's children, could have married. Now, as I said, and later on, I would, if I have the time, I'm going to argue the young earth reading creates problems. But I'm going to provide a sneak peek because I don't want to catch anybody off guard. Here's the case I would like to lay out. Now, notice I primar primarily relied on what scripture said. See, I can let scripture just interpret scripture. And notice we don't have to abandon any core doctrines. We can, accept, we can accept an historical Adam and Eve. God made the first covenant with them, which they broke, sin entered the world. As Paul says in Romans 5.13, there is no sin where there is no law. So there could not really have been sin before there was a law given. And that sin entered the world, we spiritually died, Christ came to redeem us from our sin and offer us real immortality in the resurrection where Adam failed. The scripture and science are not in contradiction. It's like comparing apples to oranges. There are different realms of inquiry. So there's no reason to abandon if you were convicted to believe what modern scientists are now telling us about our physical origins. Now, there is a lot more I could say. I know I've not answered every objection, answered every question uh, in this brief 15 minutes, but I want to give you a general idea of what I'm getting at here. If you want more on my YouTube channel, Inspiring Philosophy, I have a series on Genesis 1 through 11 that I'm currently working on. And I explain a lot of that in more detail and so on. And with that, I'll conclude, and I look forward to hearing what Dr. Boot has to say. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. And uh, thank you to the uh, organizers of this event for the opportunity to be a part of this uh, discussion. And I think it uh, can be a rewarding one. So because of the very limited time, I'm going to uh, uh, press through quickly. Uh, I don't have a PowerPoint, 
I'm afraid. Uh, all my points are PowerPoints. The, uh, <laughs> no, actually, the, the issue was the, uh, my, my uh, disk got corrupted. Unfortunately, I wasn't aware of my memory stick. So here we are. So the, tonight's debate is actually, is evolution compatible with the Bible? Is evolution compatible with the Bible? Plato actually described the human person as, quote, a bipedal living being without feathers. And uh, Diogenes then plucked a cockerel as an example of his human being. And so Plato added to the definition with flat toenails. Uh, So if human beings are merely advanced animals, are descended from hominids, some kind of ape-like ancestor, uh, what is left of the distinctive nature of human beings? So special creation... I think is central to biblical teaching. And actually this debate about uh, origins uh, tonight and the Bible is current only because some people believe uh, evolutionary ideas about the past which are dressed in a scientific garb and they believe that they force us to reinterpret, that the science forces us to reinterpret scripture. Michael actually already said tonight, the scientific fact of evolution as though we're dealing with something that's just fully settled and established. So first question, what is science, if science has settled this? Well, natural science, modern natural science, concerns theoretical disciplines that are fallible, tentative, and constantly changing in their conclusions, constantly being updated. You begin with a hypothesis or a theory, and through observation and experimentation, you try and demonstrate it. And all such theories are laden with religious and philosophical assumptions about reality. There's no so-called scientific theory that is not governed by certain assumptions about reality. There's no neutral theory. And actually, strictly speaking, no scientific hypothesis can ever be verified. It can only be falsified. There's no absolute verification of any scientific hypothesis. And actually, this form of science, this testing observation, arose after the Reformation because... Uh, our reformed forebears rejected allegorical hermeneutics of scripture and demythologized the natural world. They affirmed God's creation and God's law. So actually, when you attack, I think, biblical creation in the name of science, you actually tear down your own house and you re-mythologize the world as operating in terms of some sort of mysterious entelechy, some kind of mysterious law that's operative within the natural order. What is evolution? If we're to know whether it's compatible with the Bible, what is it? Well, there are various evolutionary models, but it has two meanings. First, the special theory of evolution. This is not controversial. It simply observes that there's biological variation through natural selection. And this was a model that was employed before Darwin by a creationist scientist called Edward Blythe to account for animal adaption to the environment and the conservation of species. Then there's the general theory of evolution, which is the one that theistic evolutionists are concerned with to uh, synthesize with scripture. And the general theory attempts to extrapolate from biological variation to universal common descent to the first living organisms about 4.1 billion years ago. And this process extends actually back then to pre-organic systems, macromolecules, atoms, elementary particles, and so forth. 
This requires innovation in DNA through code-expanding mutations or other unobserved mechanisms, despite the fact that the, the living cell has a repair system that is there to prevent the, uh, the, the downward trend, a selective disadvantage of irreparable mutations. So theistic evolutionists or evolutionary creationists feel they are compelled by science to harmonize the general theory of evolution with the Bible. Here's some reasons where I think that general evolution can't be synthesized with scripture. First of all, evolution actually is not a scientific theory. Unlike theories like gravity or thermodynamics or quantum mechanics, general evolution cannot be studied in any direct way. It can't be replicated in a laboratory under experimental conditions. It's a historical story of how particles became people. One of the greatest philosophers of science of the 20th century, Karl Popper, called Darwin's basic idea, quote, not a testable scientific theory, but a metaphysical research project. He argued that it was unfalsifiable. The Nobel laureate in physics, Robert Laughlin, agreed, and he argues that general evolution is anti-science and involves explanations that have no implications and cannot be tested. So he says, your protein defies the laws of mass action. Evolution did it. Your complicated mass of chemical reactions turns into a chicken. Evolution. The human brain works on logical principles no computer can emulate. Emu uh, evolution is the cause. And actually, the geneticist uh, Richard Lewontin, not a Christian, suggested that even natural selection explains nothing because it explains everything. Explains nothing because it explains everything. And this led actually one of the leading atheistic philosophers of our time, Thomas Nagel, in his book Mind and Cosmos, to say that the idea that physical law can account for the life of human beings, quote, is an assumption governing the scientific project rather than a well-confirmed scientific hypothesis. So my first question tonight is, why would Christians need to bow before the beliefs and ideology and metaphysics of non-believing people in the sciences in terms of a hypothesis uh, that is far from established to use then as our controlling idea for the interpretation of scripture, which is frankly what all of these ideas are fundamentally about. How do we get enough time into the narrative to allow for the general theory of evolution? So evolution is not a scientific theory. What is it? It's a worldview. It's a total worldview. And that's why if you go to university today, you can study evolutionary linguistics, evolutionary anthropology, evolutionary comparative religion, evolutionary psychology, and on and on and on. Because it's not a biological theory. It's a worldview. It's a worldview. It's a controlling paradigm. Julian Huxley, one of the most famous British evolutionists, says the whole of reality is evolution, a single process of self-transformation. That's what general theory of evolution means. And don't forget, it's ongoing. It's going on now. Everything's evolving. Everything's changing. You're still evolving on the basis of this theory. And this worldview character is seen in the fact that it destroys real distinctions that we know within creation. Every distinction between functions or modes of being and between entities has been transgressed by evolution and therefore they are less than fully real. So let me give you a quick example. The physical functioning of something is not the same as its biotic functioning. Different laws govern physical things, physical matter, atoms for example, molecules, and the biotic functioning of a living system.
The laws which govern those things are different. No molecule or atom, anybody would argue, is alive in and of itself. Actually, molecular biology is a contradiction in terms on that basis. Living things, actually, interestingly enough, are made up of dead things. And there's a marvel in and of itself. But how can the higher level of biotic life come into existence from lower levels governed by different laws, which is what the general theory of evolution requires. Michael Polanyi asked the question, how can the emergent have arisen from particulars that cannot constitute it? One of the most uh, famous modern physicists, Paul Davies, uh, says, and I quote, biological information is not encoded in the laws of physics and chemistry. In other words, these law orders are not reducible to each other, but that's exactly what evolution says. So this debate is actually not, is uh, a biological theory compatible with the Bible? It's, is the evolutionary worldview compatible with the biblical worldview? I suggest to you the answer is no. There is no valid synthesis of these worldviews. One posits a continuing process of constant flux and natural laws, which natural laws somehow are not evolving, and the other, a completed creative act, discrete laws and norms for distinct functions and entities and active providence. So that's the problem with evolution. What about the Bible now and why it can't exegetically be synthesized with evolutionary theory? Well, the Bible doesn't contain any theories, so I'm not interested in trying to reconcile it with any. God's infallible word doesn't contain hypotheses or theories, certainly not ancient cosmologies either. What it teaches forms the foundation of the very possibility of any theory making. Scripture speaks in the ordinary, everyday, observational language of human beings of any era, not in the abstract, theoretical concepts of the sciences. So the choice is not between actually is Genesis science or poetry, but is it history? Is it historical? Does it speak truthfully about the subjects it touches? And Hebrews 11.3 and Colossians 1.15 following tell us that everything was created by God's command through Christ. It all consists in him. Paul says in Romans 11.36, from him, through him, to him are all things. That doesn't sound like an evolutionary process guided by necessary natural laws to me. Genesis deals with unique unrepeatable, untestable events. So no scientific law or analysis can ever give an account of the creation of the ordered cosmos from nothing or the calling into being of the animal kingdom after their kind and the forming, the very specific mode that God has of forming, like a potter, which is what the word means, of human beings. These were creative acts of God at the beginning of creation. So to look for scientific laws to account for special creation is to confuse act with process and creation with providence. Current processes cannot account for creation any more than they can account for the resurrection of Jesus or is turning water into wine, or is calling Lazarus out of the tomb. Modern evolution is the legacy of rationalism and the attempt to reduce reality to mathematical and physical laws. Next, evolution denies the perspicuity of Scripture. I mean, according to Michael so far this evening, we already know that all the English translations are basically wrong. And Christians have been misreading the Bible for centuries. 
The concept of evolution is not new. It was there with the pagans, it was there in Babylon, it was with the Greeks. And Aximander claimed six centuries before Christ that living creatures came into existence in a rising line after each other. And when you think about the power of this idea of the evolutionary worldview and the, and the idea of evolution, it's such a far-reaching concept. Is it conceivable that God would, fail to, would have failed to reveal something about it to us? The idea that people could not understand the true meaning or import of Genesis prior to modern evolutionary theory is a denial of the clarity of Scripture. That's its perspicuity. And actually, a denial of perspicuity is really amounts to a denial of its authority because you need an expert. You need a Hebrew grammarian or an evolutionary biologist to tell you what the Bible means. Next, theistic evolution is inconsistent with a plain reading of Scripture. A plain reading of scripture says God creates, created everything in six days. I was glad to hear that Michael acknowledges those were days. That's confirmed in Exodus 20. The Hebrew word for day, yom, with a number, is used 410 times outside of Genesis 1. And it always means a day, a normal day. Some say Genesis is poetry. Well, all language uses metaphors, of course, and figures of speech. But Genesis contains the verb patterns expected of Hebrew historical narrative. It doesn't have the parallelism, which is constitutive of Hebrew poetry. You want to read a poetic creation account? Go to Psalm 104. The, all the rest of the biblical authors clearly treat Genesis as history, including Jesus and the Apostle Paul. And Adam is in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and he's the son of God. He has no earthly father. So there was a special, unique way in which God created Adam and Eve. He doesn't have a proto-hominid parents or other human parents. They are the first human pair, and God has a unique and specific way of creating them. Finally, some theological reasons for this incompatibility with evolution. Evolution undermines the clear witness of creation to the existence and character of God. Never has there been an idea more powerful in leading people away from the Christian faith. It's one of the main reasons. 97%, according to Jerry Bergman, of leading evolutionary biologists reject a theistic worldview. If this is the truth about the world. Why is it so deleterious to faith in Christ? Evolution is an all-pervasive, ongoing process, remember. And when you look at the natural world, it's savagery, it's brutal, gory, disease-ridden, pitiless context when you look at even the animal kingdom cancers disease strangulation poison starvation suffocation evisceration and all the human suffering yet for theistic evolutionists things have always been this way this is normal that's how the world is there's no very good creation before all these natural evils this is part of the world that contradicts the teaching of paul in romans 8 that the world has been subject to futility in the minds of most in our popular culture, belief in evolution and disbelief in God are associated. Daniel Dennett, famous atheistic philosopher and promoter of evolution, called it a universal acid. It eats through just about every traditional concept and leaves in its wake a revolutionized worldview. It destroys the creation for redemption paradigm of the Bible. Now, I know that Michael's going to try and assure us that it doesn't. But the, 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 the worldview of the Bible says there's creation, there's fall, and there's redemption. There's paradise lost and there's paradise regained. According to Genesis, animals ate plants, as did man. There was no nephesh life death. 
The life is in the blood. This was foreign to paradise. Because of the sin of our first parents, though, death, disease, suffering, natural disasters entered into the world so that you and I today feel that if somebody, if one of your friends gets cancer or your mother gets cancer, you think there's something wrong with the world. It's broken. It shouldn't be this way. But no, evolution says it's the engine of life. Death is a good thing. It's not the last enemy. It's your friend. It's taking us on an upwardly mobile journey, maybe even into the kingdom of God, according to Thiele de Chardin, the Catholic theistic evolutionist. Evolution denies this paradigm. Death is not a penalty. Evolution, in the end, makes a nonsense, I think, of the biblical worldview. For evolution, death is the creative engine of life. Jesus and Paul, it seems to me, were very clear that God from, God from the beginning of creation made them male and female. Mark chapter 7 verses 6 through 8. I don't think Jesus was mistaken. And I don't think Paul was mistaken in his understanding of the link between Christ and Adam. And those are the reasons why I think that this unhappy marriage is not a successful one. Thank you. Okay, so now we're transitioning into the second half of our event. We will be having a cross-examination. I realized I did not actually yeah, clarify our resolution at the beginning of the event. Uh, so again, the resolution is, be it resolved, evolution is compatible with the Bible. Um, yeah, transitioning into cross-examination period, we really get to move kind of from these broad presentations. And now we get to see how both of these different presentations meet each other in questions. For this question period, we are going to have 15 minutes for each speaker. And for the first 15 minutes, uh, Michael Jones will be leading the questioning. Uh, and for the uh, after that, we will have uh, Dr. Boot lead 15 minutes of questioning. Um, uh, because uh, questioning is a bit more... Uh, loose and, and hard to control. I am going to be a bit more uh, careful with 15 minutes uh, and trying to keep to that. So just so you are aware of that, we have the time up there for you guys. Uh, and uh, around 15 minutes, I'll, I'll be coming up to uh, formal transition, and I'll get this mic to you, uh, Dr. Boot. All right. Test this on. I don't think two. Testing. There we go. Okay. All right, well, yeah, uh, thank you for the presentation. Uh, we were supposed to send each other two questions beforehand, so I'm going to go with those first. So first question is, you know, I sent you was, if creation was perfect before the fall, why did God tell mankind the earth needs subdued in Genesis 1.28? Why say that his perfect creation needs to be brought under control? Okay. That's a good question. Um... I think the first thing is that, that I don't think the Bible says that God made creation perfect. The scripture uses the term good and very good. I think we have to define what we mean by perfect. I think what I understand by perfect, if we think about the eschaton as bringing things to perfection, um, it has to do fundamentally with direction. Um, the, uh, the, the, the command to subdue um, the, the creation doesn't come to our first parent shrink-wrapped and microwavable. I, I totally agree with that. There's potential for growth and development and an unfolding and so on and so forth. Um, so it's not reached its final destination. So in that sense, I wouldn't talk about uh, perfection. I'd agree with that. I would agree with that. The subduing, to, to my mind, is about the cultural task. It's the creation has built into it certain potentialities. 
there's minerals in the ground. There are uh, plants and fruit trees and to be uh, grown and harvested. There's all kinds of potentiality. And so the culture that's subduing is about bringing um, uh, order, to bringing, to bringing all of that uh, that God has made into, under man's authority, which is man's position, human being's position in creation. Okay, well, I have some questions about that then. Uh, sure. So the word subdue in, in scripture, it refers to war conquest, enslavement, trampling underfoot. Uh, it really, you know, scholars noted like Joshua, John Benny, these are very harsh terms. The word for helper, if Robert Alter notes the word for helper in Genesis 2, Eve, is a word also used for like a military sustainer. Like this is about a war comp. You need to go out there and fix that because it is chaotic. Yeah. Wouldn't it seem that God is saying, look, I have begun the process of ordering the cosmos. I need you to help me go to do it. And if you agree it's not already perfect, I mean, that opens the door to say that, well, then it was in a chaotic state prior to that. It wasn't this perfect, deathless uh, place. Yeah, no, I just, I just, I think the term perfect is equivocal. Um, the, 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 the creation was a finished work. Creation was finished. It was finished on day six. God rested on the seventh day. Um, and there's a sense there of the idea of rest there is victory. Uh, fulfillment, victory, that it's done, something is completed. Um, and uh, I'm not going to uh, question notions that the Hebrew words may carry the force of bring into subjection. Um, you know, if you leave your uh, if you leave your garden untended, uh, it's clear that the garden needed to, to be tended. It needs to be brought into um, uh, subjection. And so I also think that the God had the kingdom of God in view. Um, and that means, how do you, as image bearers, how do we reflect God's will and purpose consistently to creation? So, what I don't think is that uh, um, the, there was some law of necessity at work. I mean, if, if the evolutionary account of reality is true, and what we're looking at it really is simply um, natural laws of necessity, evolutionary laws that are governing reality, I don't see how we could bring those under control in any case. I'm a subject, in that view, I'm a subject to evolution. I don't control it. Well, that could easily be challenged because as a lot of biologists know, we're not subject to nature anymore. We, there, was a, there was a theory in evolution called Nietzsche construction. Have you heard of that? Yes. The Nietzsche construction is basically the idea that organisms and their ecological niches are co-defining. So think of a beaver dam. The beaver is constantly changing the environment with dams. So, this idea that we're completely subject to nature is not even inherent in evolution, as most biologists do understand and accept needs construction. So. Well, but won't you would agree that most biologists would say that, uh, that they're looking at uh, uh, physical, from, for most uh, evolutionary biologists, they don't believe they're looking at law order at all. They believe they're looking at chance structures and mutations. Not, not true anymore. There's been a lot of shift towards, from, towards a structuralist understanding. Uh, I'm, I'm aware, I am aware of the, 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 the various models that have been put forward because they recognize the, so the goal-oriented nature of things. I'm aware of that. So if that exists, though, then that would not be this chance random idea of evolution. I mean, I speak a lot about the theory of evolution I hold to, which is structuralism, and that's very much goal-directed, constrained, fine-tuned evolution, you get to this point of humans. If you were to rewind the tape of life on my view of evolution and Simon Conway Morris's view, you would get human life again. And again yeah, so you're talking again. about the law of necessity. Yeah. So, so you're, you're, you're in immediate conflict, you've got an antinomy there with the idea of human freedom. You are a subject of evolution and the law of necessity. Not necessarily, because I don't think that... Law so you could be both free and bound by well, the law of necessity. I don't think the nature created consciousness. I don't think consciousness, as Thomas Nagel, you quoted, points out, yeah. there is no evidence for that. So I personally am more of an idealist, 
So I don't look at humans as just the product of the physical. We are mental first, and then the physical is sort of like... So you mean that. God is intervening at various points in the process no. of evolution? No, I think God snapped his fingers and said, yeah, it'll work out the way I want it, because that's how powerful he is. So what do we need? Why, why does anybody looking at that need God? Well, what do you mean? Well, if you've got matter plus natural laws that you just got, that's all there, mm -hmm. plus, plus zero for the atheist equals everything. You're just adding God on the end. How is he a needed hypothesis? I, I would refer this? you to my debate last month with Matt Dillon, where I gave there's evidence. See, I don't believe things because we need to. I believe because the evidence points us there. And so my view is based on I will believe in God because the evidence shows us. I will believe in you know quantum mechanics because the evidence shows us. So I would say there is a lot of strong evidence for God's existence. One of the arguments I use is the resurrection argument. Yeah, I, I think probably I'd look at it, I, I take it the completely the other way around. That's, that's I think it's religious presuppositions of the yeah. interpretation. You can bring that up in your time. So the sure. second question I sent you was, Genesis constantly employs this phrase, these are the generations of, about 11 times, and always introduces what comes after the person. The so generations of Terah, generations of Adam. Yeah. Since this is used in Genesis 2-4, what that, that implies a sequel to Genesis 1, implying Adam and Eve come after the humans mentioned generally in Genesis 1. Yeah, I was interested in your um, in your uh, question about this because that was that was novel to me. I never I never heard it attempted before to say that the humans created in Genesis chapter one. John Walton and Michael Heiser use it a lot. Yeah, um, the, the the Genesis chapter two. This is now these are now different human beings. Um, so uh, I agree with you about the teledos that the the, the 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 expression these are the generations of. Uh, uh, is a superscript, as it were. Um, so there's no Taladoth, there's no these other generations of for, the, for chapter one, obviously, because God's the cause of everything. Okay, so it's, it's natural that we'd see the first one in Genesis 2 4. Um, uh, I recognize that. Genesis, uh, the, 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 what's going on in Genesis 2, I'm sure you're aware of this discussion, um, and this would have been the position of Martin Luther and John Calvin, and most evangelical interpreters of scripture is now we are, Genesis 2 now zones in on the creation, on the details, which was a very common uh, uh, literary mode in ancient writing, that you would give a general, you'd give a general uh, summary and then you'd focus in on the detail, which is what's going on in Genesis chapter 2. So where is this phrase, Toledoth, ever used to be like a recap or like trying to give some more uh, details of what came before that? It, I don't see it ever happening in Genesis for well, the uh, uh, always about what comes after that person. Yes. So this is what Genesis two four following is what follows from God's act of creation. Right. Is the human beings have been now? It's interesting that you're insistent on these historical sequence because my understanding is that your view is that this isn't actually history. No, no, I think this is history. So you think this is history? Then? You can see my Genesis series. I think that Adam and Eve were the first priests and priestess of creation. But they weren't the first human beings. No, they were not. That is not what Scripture says. So. Uh, let's move on, I'm running out of time. Um, okay, so aren't days and nights literally dictated by the sun? How were there three days before the sun on day four? Now, I know you think, you've said in your Genesis series, you're your own, there was another light source. But days are literally dictated by the sun. Was God turning off this light source at night or something? Sure. Um, yeah, this is, often, uh, this is often raised with respect to the creation account. I'd be interested to hear how if you believe in, in the, that these days were real days, how you account for it. But. Uh, the, 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 the light source, the, what we're told is that God created light uh, uh, before the sun, of course, right? Let there be light, and there was light. 
But on top of what that light source was, all you need for a day is a rotating planet and a light source. So the fact that, that that light was gathered together into the sun later in the creation week on day four is not a problem to me because I don't believe that I'm looking, when I'm reading the creation, the creation account, I don't believe that I, I am required to take one-off, unrepeatable, untestable events that were the creative act of God and make it fit with your evolutionary paradigm. Well, it just sounds a little ad hoc to it. It's going to be one light source, but then we're going to be another light source. No, I didn't say it was another light source. I'm saying that, was, that light source was gathered together into what we today call the sun. So that it was just set in place. Light flow. Okay, they sort of gathered. Okay. And next question. Do you take all of Genesis 1 to 3 literally? Well, it depends what you mean by literally. I take the Bible to, from the uh, historical grammatical perspective. Would you agree there are metaphors in Genesis 2? I'd agree that all language contains metaphors. So, but like, Genesis 2.24, so, man shall cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Mm -hmm. You understand that's a metaphor, we're not literally being sewn together. I, as a married man, I think that's right. Yeah. <laughs> we basically understand that, you know, they, they can use metaphors in there to explain these things, and we have to accept that for Genesis 2.24. If that's the case, could it also be the case this is happening in other places, just in the general vicinity of them. I, I think it's, um, I think that there are figures of speech and metaphors in, in uh, all use of language, and I think there's tremendous uh, historical and theological significance to what's being said there about the one flesh, the sexual union of, uh, I mean, the Bible talks about Adam knowing his wife, we know what he's talking about there, it's sexual knowledge. So this unity which Jesus refers to actually from the beginning of creation, you made the male and female is a clear, to my mind, a clear reference to Adam and even the, the first marriage. Okay, I have a more interesting question. Sure. Uh, so you believe that we can count the ages in Genesis 5 are literal? What do you mean the ages? Like someone actually lived at 900. Uh, yes, I do. Yeah. Yeah. Can I ask you a question about that? You may, I'm sure okay, I will so, get into a trap. Yeah, so, <laughs> you sure are. <laughs> According to Genesis 11 and 12, Terah was 130 when Abraham was born. But in Genesis 17, God tells Abraham he will have a son in his old age. And Abraham laughs and replies, you know, Shall a man who is born, shall a man, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90, bear a child? And in Genesis 18, God even implies people in her old age just didn't have children. If the ages are literal, why does Abraham think it's impossible, and God even implies that people don't have children after the age 100? Well, I think uh, it depends whether you want more of a theological, or a scientific response to that, but the... the I want to focus on scripture. Scripture, okay, sure. So, um, Abraham is obviously living well after the period of uh, creation and of the flood. I think the flood was a pivotal, uh, a pivotal moment in God's judgment in Earth history. And uh, with the, what you saw there is a narrowing of the genetic pool at the point of the flood because we all go back to Noah and uh, his wife and their sons, and uh, human age ranges diminished very quickly. So by the time of Abraham, it was the, the great ages like that were simply not common. But well, I think it helps us understand the contemporary... Ever, still, ever our facts are still alive when Abraham was alive, even Shem, according to take the Masoretic dates. Mm -hmm. So these were still alive. Ever actually, Masoretic dates, ever outlived Abraham. And his grandson, Joseph, uh, Jacob, had children past 90. If, you, if, the day, if the ages are literal. Couldn't these just be literary devices used a lot in ancient Near East? Why do they have to be literal when Abraham seems to contradict this idea? Well, I just think that when it said so-and-so was X number of years old, that's what it means. Um, right. And uh, that we don't need to be looking for some you know, secret message in there. All right, so next question regarding, you believe in the global flood, right? 
I do believe in a global flood. Right. It's not the subject of this debate, but I do. Yeah. Right, do you want to stay away from that? I'll no, stay away. you can hit me with whatever you like. All right, Genesis, <laughs> Genesis 8 9 says the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. But Genesis 8 5 says the tops of the mountains were seen. Doesn't this imply the flood was more of a local, regional idea if tops of the mountains were seen and then uses that phrase after the fact? Well, I think the scripture account says that the flood waters were uh, you know, gradually receded. Right, but Genesis 8 9 says still in the face of the whole earth. Yeah, so, so it's across it, the face of the whole earth, yeah. So that, so that is not literally, it's still, there's, there's mountains, there's terrestrial regions that you can see. Um, well, I wasn't there, so, <laughs> you know, I, I, I can't say whether uh, the, some peaks of the mountains were peeking over the top at some point in the recession of the waters, but, uh, you know, human language, just like I'm going to say that tonight, well, it was a, maybe it was a nice sunset or... Uh, uh, the, the, it wasn't. It wasn't. It was a beautiful sunset this evening. Um, I don't talk about. You know, it wasn't a lovely Earth rotation tonight. We use these kinds of um, uh, uh, expressions, and, and it's the ordinary observational language that Scripture is written, so that it will be relevant to every age. So yeah. So they can use ordinary language that doesn't have to be literal, though. But it can be. It can be. Um, it can be truthful without and, and not misleading, without being wooden. So, you know, the Lord is my shepherd doesn't mean God's up there with a staff wandering around like a shepherd. I mean, I get that, right? That's not, that's not what a literal meaning of the uh, reading of Scripture means. That's my point, though. They're able to use that type of language, and we don't have to, it doesn't imply necessarily a global flood. It can imply a regional flood by that ordinary language. Well, I think that there's just way too much uh, uh, scriptural, um, I mean, Jesus talks about the flood. Taking humanity away. The Apostle Peter, Peter, the Apostle Peter, well, I haven't got time to watch all your videos. Um, uh, I have one coming up. You know, Peter, Peter talks about the, 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 the flood. It's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a theme that's dealt with in multiple times in Scripture. So I think it's uh, time to transition now. You guys can choose to pick up there, but uh, I'll and I'll be leading the questioning. Thank you. Give me your worst. <laughs> All right, so um, you talked in your presentation, Michael, about um, the fact that you think that you can uh, take the fall seriously, but you don't need to reckon with the idea of death, disease, suffering, decay, um, the... the, the uh, natural disasters, the apparent, what we call natural evil in, in the world, that was something that is, from the evolutionary account, um, part and parcel of the norm for created uh, reality. That's just what creation is. There was no time when there weren't cancers and uh, Alzheimer's and um, disease and mutation and suffering and evisceration and death and killing. This is all part of God's good creation. Now, the Bible says that death is the last enemy to be defeated, right? The death is, is seen as an enemy. Now, I was a little bit concerned by your attempt to, in sort of Greek dualistic terms, separate the physical world from the spiritual, and just talk about, well, this is just talking about some spiritual death, because you know Jesus was raised physically from the dead for a reason, um, because it was the conquest of sin and death and its penalty that he was dealing with. So, um, 
How do you account for scripture regarding death as the last enemy, the anger of Jesus at the death of Lazarus, and his healing of the sick as pointing towards the restoration of all things on an evolutionary worldview? Well, yeah, I'm glad you asked that. Uh, as I was sort of talking about in my presentation, as I brought up with Genesis 1.28, uh, God takes this chaotic universe and starts to order it properly. Now, God could just come back now and begin the end times right now, but he doesn't because he's always wanted to work through people, through us. He's a relational being. He's always wanted to do that. That's why he chose Israel. That's why he says we are called to conform to the image of his son. He wants to work through fallen people. That's God wants to make this universe perfect, but he's always wanted to work through beings, through relational access. So Genesis 1 sets that up. You go out and subdue creation. All of us are called to do that. We're called to make this universe a better place. That's why the Great Commission was given to the church, and Jesus didn't just do it there. He wants to work through people. Yeah, but you've argued, haven't you, that uh, prior to Adam and Eve, who apparently were not our first parents, uh, but there was this race of human beings created in Genesis 1, and then before that, proto-hominids and everything. You're, you're positing 4.1 billion years of the crude process of evolution, of natural disaster, of death, disease, suffering, decay, and so on and so forth. That's part of God's very good creation before human beings ever even arrived on the scene. Well, first of all, good in Genesis, as I talked about this in my Genesis series, good, as it's defined in Genesis, as numerous Old Testament scholars have noted, refers to functioning properly. God sets up everything to function properly. This is evident in Genesis 2. It says it's not good for the man to be alone. He's not functioning as his priest properly. He needs a helper or a military sustainer, really. So when, um, when the man with leprosy came to Jesus, was he functioning properly? No, because he's you know, living in a fallen world. Yeah, but you just said the fall of world is the, way, the, the, the condition of the world as it is with disease and death and suffering. So it's the way God, it's the engine of life. So let's, the, let's, talk he's about, unfit. let's talk about disease for a second. So a lot of the diseases we have today weren't around during the hunter-gatherer period because they were not domesticating animals. Were you there to observe that? that this issue? is just based on the... Uh, I mean, you weren't either, as you even said. No, I got the Bible to tell me. But a lot of diseases came about from civilizations. It's this sort of uh, species jumping, like... Whooping cough was originally like a cold in pigs. The problem is it's in humans and it thinks it's in a pig and therefore it creates a lot more havoc. This is why there weren't a lot of diseases in the New World before Europeans came over. They didn't have as much domestication. That's why it ravaged them. So a lot of the diseases we suffer from today came about from human civilizations of us constantly trying to build Babel. So cancer is a cell replicating problem. Is that, is that, is that a human civilizational problem? No, that is something that we would definitely see in the genetic code. That it would have been a lot less, it been a lot less frequent during that sort of phase. Again, yeah, I'd have to ask, were you there to observe the frequency? Well, neither were you. Well, no, if I'm saying that it wasn't there, it wasn't present. We're anyway, we can, we can move on from we can move on from that. I, I'm, str I'm struggling to understand the meaning of the healing miracles of Christ and the physical resurrection of Jesus from the dead Jesus as necessary to conquer sin and death. Why couldn't Jesus just be spiritually raised? and be ready to take us up. Because Adam and Eve, as I said, were real historical people. We were given immortality through the tree of life. He failed. Jesus is the priest who came to succeed and redeem us from that to give us real immortality in the resurrection. So yeah, as I said in my opening presentation, I do think there's a physical aspect there. But it's about covenants. Christ has set up the new covenant had to redeem us from the one Adam failed with. Okay, so the, I think that the, the, I, I hear where you're borrowing covenant and so on and so forth, but I still think you're trying to uh, essentially cement two antithetical perspectives there. Okay, another question for you. Um, would you agree with this statement from Francis Collins, who's the founder of BioLogos, that, uh, quote, the model for evolution that we are proposing here thus requires 
No intrusions from the outside for its account of God's creative process, except for the origins of natural laws guiding the process. Would you agree with that? Not necessarily, because I'm an idealist. So no. Okay, so you wouldn't, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't essentially agree with the idea that you don't need these outside interventions in the evolution, in the, in the various stages of the evolution I don't process. think they're necessary, but, I, but he seems to be talking more about possibility there, like could there be interventions? Um, it's possible, but I don't, but he's also more of a neo-Darwinist, I'm more of a structuralist. So okay. I don't even agree with him on his view of evolution. Okay, so well, that's a good illustration. There you've got a neo-Darwinist who is the head of the Genome uh, Project, founder of Biologos, which represents many theistic evolutionists, but you actually have an intramural debate and discussion with that issue on actually how evolution even functions. Yeah, I got a okay. video called Was Evolution? So you, so you called evolution a scientific fact, but you can't even agree with Francis Collins, who's a Christian and believes in evolution. So what's the problem with the... how? how how has this obtained the status of fact in your uh, in your understanding here? Well, under philosophy of science, I wouldn't necessarily use that. It's more used in like colloquial sense. I would use it as a progressive research program. So it's a research program. The evidence has been showing that it's leading us in this direction. The same language I would use when I argue against atheists for God's existence. This is the best explanation of the data. This is the best inference. So I use the exact same language there. Okay, that's interesting. Okay, so... Um, which natural law then? You say this is this is this is the uh, you say the best explanation for what is in front of us today is evolution. It's a science that you're saying it's pretty much a scientific fact. Well, at least that was the language you used in the beginning of your presentation. Which natural law has man discovered that's able to transform mathematical, spatial, physical law laws, different law systems into biotic law? How do, which law can take, which natural law can take lifeless chemicals and turn it into biotic systems? Which natural, which, which, can you name the, the law that's within demonstrated? It would not be a law, it would be a collection of self-assembly process we discovered, like from the work of Jeremy England, there was a paper written, evolution was chemically constrained, where they even say in their conclusion, life was in a physical tunnel, and there was only one way to go. So, these, these so, so it's of necessity then. So how would, how would that law, you said you could wind the universe back and if you restarted it again, exactly the same outcome would happen to humans. So presumably that, and, and that, that, that very idea presupposes the notion that this is, a, is essentially an uninterrupted process. There's a law of necessity. You should wind it back, you'd wind it back forward again, and there it all is. So you're, you're fundamentally destroying the distinction between mathematical law, physical law, spatial law, biotic law, logical, human beings have operate in terms of logical law as well. These are all different spheres of law. But you're saying they all transgress boundaries and that actually molecules, which are not alive, became people in a necessary process. So I'm just wanting to understand which law of science, which uh, Paul Davies has himself, I quoted the physicist Paul Davies, who's not a Christian, says there is no known law that can take physical and chemical processes and in the term of the biological system. I, you said science, the scientific uh, uh, evolutionary idea is a fact, and that therefore that needs to be a controlling paradigm as we look at the scriptures. Well, so, no, I did not say it needs to be a controlling paradigm as we look at the scriptures. My presentation was just to sort of let scripture interpret scripture, and it's like, it's like is, is, is scripture compatible with quantum mechanics? Yeah, well, they're talking about different things. So I never said it's going to be a controlling factor. Okay, fair factor. enough. So um, did Jesus and Paul... Uh, I mean, there were evolutionary ideas around with the Babylonians, uh, very well worked out ones with the Greeks some 600 years before Christ. Paul knew Greek philosophy, he quoted it to 
the Epicureans and Stoics, the Epicureans had evolutionary ideas. Did Paul believe in the historical creation account as I would understand it? Which you know, or did he believe in some kind of evolution? What did Jesus say? To quote Joe, I wasn't there. Right. <laughs> uh, but I mean, I think Paul, Paul and Jesus well, appeared to tell remember, us what they believe. Let, so let, just... let me quote uh, young earth creationist Frank Turk. I don't know if he's younger, he might be older, but uh, he said, every thought Paul had was uninspired. Everything that Paul wrote down was inspired in those scriptures. So he didn't write that stuff down to explicitly state that. So, as I said, I even referred to Paul in Acts 15. I think he was teaching that Adam had a mortal body. So, um, why is it that until the Darwinian, post-Darwinian period, nobody thought of interpreting the, uh, the, the, the scriptures in evolutionary terms? I don't think that's entirely true, and I think it's just, and, you know, let me, let me get this point out. It's kind of a coincidence, because we discovered a lot more in terms of ancient literature. We didn't even read Egyptian hieroglyphics until the 1800s. We didn't even have the Dead Sea Scrolls. found far more Greek manuscripts. This is the best all areas confirmed what we already understood. This is the best period for biblical interpretation because we have a wealth of information the early church fathers just didn't have. So we're fortunate. We can look at all this ancient Near Eastern literature. We have more scriptures. Yeah, but what's um, the relevance of Near Eastern ancient Near Eastern literature is what you've been saying? You just said scripture interprets scripture. So are you saying the Enuma Elish is somehow uh, involved in our interpretation of Genesis? No, I would agree with scholar Mark Chawalas that there are grammatical correlations. But ultimately, it's a distinct culture. However, we can see similarities there. It can help us better understand the worldview and the culture of that time period. So well, I wouldn't deny that reading Enuma Elish about fresh water and salt water being the creating the gods, Apsu and Tiamat and so forth, that is not a creation account. And it seems to me that a lot of the people that you're reading are always looking for these types of correlations to make to create some kind of dependency of the biblical I mean, narrative on it, these ideas. Wouldn't it make sense to read the Declaration of Independence in conjunction with the Federalist Papers? We or we read documents from around the same time period. Well, I don't think that either of those were inspired by God. I mean, I like it's Americans. A, it's an analogy. No. Uh, yeah, sure, but it's but it's a core one. I think in terms of the infallibility and inerrancy of, uh, of Scripture. I've got three minutes left. Let me just move on here, just for a moment. Um, you've acknowledged that not all human beings descended from uh, from Adam and Eve. No, I said they they've all descended from Adam and Eve. All, everyone today, not all that have existed, though. Not all that have existed. So the ones that um, um, so do you feel confident that on the basis of um, uh, the, the your understanding of creation that we have the grounds to oppose social evils like? Racial prejudice and so forth. Yes, and let me explain why. It's because remember in Genesis one, God gives the Imago Dei to all humans. It's not just Adam and Eve. They're, they were part of that. They were part of that in that sense. So yeah, all humans. Okay. So what happened to these um, it, it, humans who bore the Imago Dei but weren't elected by God? Well, they were. They were all elected to be the Imago Dei, and Adam was their first priest, just like we're elected. Yeah. By how Adam. are they in Adam? I mean, in, in Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive. What opportunity for salvation did they have? We don't have to be related to Jesus directly to be in Christ. I disagree. I think we do. I think the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ is a central idea that He, that in His human nature, what I mean is very descended from Him, though. But Jesus Himself is this. According to Luke chapter three, is descended from Adam who was a son of God, who had no human parent. Did Adam have a human parent? Yeah, I would say he did, in my view. So he now, wasn't formed, as Paul says in First Timothy, well, uh, Josh, from the dust. So one of the books I quoted Joshua Swamit, I said that you could even have that view 
with an evolutionary camp. God had a special creation for these two people that just interbred I people see. outside of the garden. So he created the first lot of human beings by evolution, but the second lot he did in a special way by forming Adam. Because there was a special way of forming Eve, uh, to take it from the side of Adam, which has central uh, importance theologically for marriage, Christ's relationship to the church, creational order, church government. So we've now got, you're saying it's possible that we've got an evolutionary story in Genesis chapter 1, and now we have a special creation story of God forming Adam and Eve in Genesis 2. I said that was possible, that's not my actual view. Okay, it seems redundant. So, well, I'm just telling us from Swaminathan's book sure. that you can have that. Now, my basic point here is that, is that when I was talking about Christ, we're not all descended from Christ. Not everyone has to be descended from Adam to be a part of the covenant. This is why the priest analogy is used in Hebrew. Yeah, I think that we do. I think scripture is clear that we do have to be. Yeah, we are it's those who are in Adam, and uh, those who are in Christ who become a royal priesthood, a holy nation. I don't. I don't agree that. Out, I don't agree that outside of that, that there is any basis for the idea of humanity or priesthood outside of Adam and Eve themselves. So you would agree not everyone who's a Christian is probably biologically related to, to like, descended from Jesus. I mean, why do we have to be descended from Adam? Of course, the same covenant. Of course, we, we, we are not, um, well, in the sense that Christ had a human nature, we are related to Christ, um, but our relationship with him is, is covenantal, and it's, of course, through the power of the Holy Spirit. But I feel like you're borrowing these terms and trying to give them a new identity and meaning in the context of an evolutionary story, but they don't really fit. Let me ask one final question in these last 22 seconds. Um, if Genesis were actually historical, uh, in the way that I've been describing, how would you have expected God to say it? If evolution didn't happen, how would you have expected Gen to, to, to God to say it in the book of Genesis? Why, don't, why is there no hint of evolution in the Bible? Why is there no hint of quantum mechanics in the Bible? That's not what we're talking because about. Because evolution is a worldview, quantum mechanics is a limited, is a fallible idea. You, that's a theory, it's not a fact. It's a theory. Theory. Yeah. <laughs> you need to look up how theories are used in science. It's a little different. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, here, I left them off up over here. Pick up that mic. Okay, we will now be transitioning into the last part of our evening. Um, so just before I explain what's going on, if I could just let uh, the leadership team of the academy uh, let them know to please go to room 210. And just a reminder uh, for students of Philosophy 210 to see uh, Ben at the TA uh, so you can get those additional marks. Um, I'm sure that's not the only reason they're here. Uh, as well, outside of... Uh, yeah, so I, I think... The way the Academy saw this when we were setting up this debate, we were seeing this as a launch pad uh, for learning about this. Um, if all of you caught every exact thing that was said here and understand it, uh, you're much smarter than I am. Um, again, yeah, this is a launch pad and we really want to begin that uh, by transitioning. So it's just down the hallway, uh, room 210, and we're hoping to organize conversation there. So what we have set up in room 210 is we have uh, students uh, who are going to be acting as hosts at a table. And we're inviting audience members, and of course not the entire audience can go there, but we would really implore you guys to please go in there and be the guests of those hosts. And the goal of the hosts is to maintain a conversation with you and to really help ourselves get past just rephrasing the arguments we're still struggling to understand, but actually talking through them. Um, again, outside of room 210, I believe there's also literature available. Um, 
And uh, that'll be lasting for about 25 minutes, uh, the kind of conversations happening in there. Um, now, before we transition over there, I don't know if we'll be speaking officially again, so I just want to say again, thank you to uh, Michael Jones and thank you to Reverend Dr. Booth for coming, and thank you everyone for coming here this evening. Uh, I would love to see you at room 210 uh, and outside of there. Thank you. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's my fault. Absolutely. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm just a young uh, university student here. Uh, <laughs> please have mercy on me. I forgot about the closing statements. Uh, so that's going to be five minutes from each of those speakers, and I'm sure that's going to be a very important time. Uh, so I'll give uh, the mic back. Um, I believe we can just go back to the setting we had when we were giving the presentations. Um, and so if we can... Uh, use the lectern here. Uh, the questions and answers will be in room 210 is what the thing is going to be. So yeah, we're going to have that set up there. So, all right. That was fun. I appreciate the conversation. I always enjoy these types of conversations. So I had a blast. Appreciate it. Uh, but I want to remind people what the debate tonight was. The debate tonight is evolution compatible with Christianity or the Bible. I've heard that Redeemer has a little bit of a Calvinist group here. Not sure, but that means a lot of you don't agree with Armenians. But I don't think you would say that Armenianism is incompatible with Christianity. There's a difference between disagreeing and recognizing something is compatible. I came here to defend just a simple idea that these are compatible ideas. You can be a Christian and believe with evolution, even if you disagree with theistic evolution. I'm sure... Most people may not agree with me here tonight. That's okay. The point is I was just showing that these things are compatible. So the reason why I do this is because I deal with a lot of atheists, and this is one of the first reasons they abandoned Christianity. They have come to the conclusion that evolution did happen, and now that's the first, as I've heard them tell me, that is the first domino to fall. But if we just accept that it's compatible, that domino doesn't fall. See, we're not trying to... I don't think we should say anyone is a heretic on this, as long as they affirm, of course, core Christian doctrines. Now, as Dr. Boot said, evolution is a theory, and yeah, I fully accept that. I wasn't coming here to defend the theory of evolution tonight. I was coming to defend, say that it's compatible with Christianity. And I think that can be easily shown through my opening statements. Uh, Dr. Boot doesn't like the theory of evolution, obviously. He disagrees with it. Most of what I heard is him arguing that he doesn't agree with the theory of evolution, that he, he doesn't like the way it looks. He doesn't, you know, it creates a, a past he doesn't agree with. That's fine. That doesn't mean it's incompatible with the Bible. That's the point tonight. So, as he's even said in his Genesis series, he gave an excellent sermon series on Genesis. I was listening to it. This is not a question of orthodoxy. I believe that was in the second one. I can't remember exactly. But this is not necessarily a question of orthodoxy. You can be a Christian and believe in evolution. Do I think you have to affirm an historical Adam and Eve? Yeah. Luckily, that's not a problem for theistic evolutionists, as we've seen here tonight. So I would encourage you all to just keep studying the subject. It's obviously not going to be settled tonight. I've given you a brief summary of my ideas. Again, my Genesis series covers a lot more on my channel, Inspiring Philosophy, where I go in more depth. I've got videos one through six, uh, or Genesis 1 through 6 up, and the rest will be coming out this year. But the main point is, as I'm just trying to reiterate, Genesis or Christianity, the Bible, is compatible with the theory of evolution. There is no reason to create this divide 
in the church that says, if you accept this, you're not a Christian, or you're outside of orthodoxy, or you're compromising. That's not the case. And I want to remind people, I did not refer to science tonight. I referred to Scripture. I let Scripture interpret Scripture, and my main point was simply that it doesn't matter what science says. It could change in 100, 200, 300 years. It won't affect the Scriptures. I'm not saying that we have to you know, modify how we see the scriptures because there is a scientific theory. No, we should let the scriptures interpret the scriptures. And that's all I did, just looking at what it says as it is in its Hebrew case. Now, Dr. Boot brought up one thing I'd like to address before I close, which is this plain reading of the scriptures. Everyone should be able to read it. In English, French, the Bible was written in Hebrew and Greek. Most people don't read Hebrew and Greek. In fact, most people that have been alive on earth have been illiterate, so they've obviously, obviously needed someone to explain it to them. The Great Commission was given to the church, and the Bible is the Word of God, inspired Word of God, given to us to help us do that. We don't drop Bibles in remote regions. We send missionaries in with Bibles to teach what the Scriptures say. So, of course, the the Scriptures were not to be divorced from the church. All of us here were to go out and help teach the Word of God. We're, we're, We're not supposed to... This idea that everyone should be able to understand exactly what it says, just read Genesis 22 to... Genesis 9, 22 to 27, and... See if you understand what's going on with Noah and his son, Ham. It's very complicated. Sometimes there is a little bit of complication in there. And that's why we need these debates to happen to uh, get through this type of stuff. This, there never says in the Bible that everyone should be able to understand every word that is written here. The, again, the Bible is given to the church. We should help each other understand it. We're not, each of us individually are not going to have all the answer, answers. So with that, I, I'll conclude. Uh, I thank you for the invite. I enjoyed coming up here. Um, would love to do it again sometime. I appreciate it. Have a good night. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, everyone, for being here, and thanks to the debate team. Of course, uh, there are challenges reading the Bible. Uh, there are difficult passages. They're all kind of difficult passages. Peter said that there are, Paul said things that were difficult to understand. And you can be a Christian and believe in evolution. It, it won't affect your eternal salvation. Uh, I believe that. I think Michael Jones is a brother of mine in Christ. Can you have a Christian worldview, though? Consistent Christian worldview and import the evolutionary idea into it. And I think that is the heart of this uh, debate. Uh, Michael has now acknowledge that evolution is a hypothesis, could be wrong, could be discarded a long time from now. Um, But one would have to acknowledge that the efforts to uh, reread or or have novel readings of the book of Genesis, whether it's the framework hypothesis or or gap theories or various other ideas, have been by the confession of those who developed those theories for the purpose of trying to find space for the general theory of evolution. Michael has said that it's one of the primary stumbling blocks that he encounters, he says, from people who don't want to believe in Christianity because they want to believe also in evolution. I found in 25 years of apologetics that actually challenging the ideology, the worldview of evolution, is one of the most liberating things that can possibly happen uh, to any individual who's skeptical about the truth of the Christian gospel. And there's a lot, of, a lot at stake. So you can be a Christian and there are challenges in reading the Bible. That's a given. But there's a lot at stake in this debate. It's central, actually, to the truthfulness of the foundational chapters of the entire Bible, the seedbed of all Christian doctrine. Belief in the unity of the human race. Belief in the ontological uniqueness of human beings. 
Belief in the special creation of Adam and Eve in the image of God as our only uh, parental progenitors. Belief in a parallel between condemnation through representation by Adam and salvation through representation by Christ. Belief in the goodness of God's original creation that wasn't disease and uh, mistake ridden. Belief that suffering and death are a result of sin and the fall, not part of that creation. Belief in the uniqueness of marriage as the first sexual pairing of humans and as a picture of Christ and the church. As soon as we allow hypotheses in the natural sciences, which are actually worldviews, that's what I've argued tonight, that evolutionism is a worldview. It's not actually a scientific theory. When we allow that to uh, transform or, in, or govern our interpretation of the early chapters of the Bible, it, it's not long before, and this has happened time and time again, people are then questioning what's in the middle and even what's at the end. If scripture tells us that all things are going to be transformed, we will be changed in the twinkling of an eye, scripture says, we shall be changed. And there will be a renewed heaven and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Is that going to take 4.1 billion years? Or does it happen at the command of God? You see, it's about the command word of God. It's, all things consist in Christ. And that's why he had power over creation to heal the sick and raise Lazarus from the dead. And that same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in you if you're a Christian and you're a new creature. And all the miracles of Jesus are pointing towards that restoration of paradise lost to paradise regained. That's the meaning of the Bible. That's the meaning of the kingdom of God. And the evolutionary worldview undermines that. It undercuts it. Consider the parallel between creation and resurrection of Jesus. They both happened thousands of years ago for theistic evolutionist creationists billions of years ago. They're both unrepeatable, unique events. No human was there to observe it or do a scientific analysis of it. And so there are only two possibilities for those who actually believe the scriptures. First, they happened necessarily according to natural laws, known or unknown to us, as Michael has argued. Or they're unrepeatable acts of God in terms of the word of God, not natural processes whose laws we can discover. And that, I put it to you, is what creation and what all the miracles of Jesus actually mean. It's what they are. No natural laws render both the development of life from non-life and the resurrection of the dead as an impossibility. So does that mean we throw overboard creation or the resurrection? If we can just wind the universe back and wind it forward again, as though there's some necessary mysterious entelechy at work now scripture says by faith we understand the worlds were prepared by the word of god so that what is seen is not made out of things which are visible if there's a figurative poetic beginning to the world why does there need to be anything more than a figurative poetic ending to all things i think the choice is evolution or revelation and i think we mislead ourselves to think that we can follow both paths and have a consistent and robust and defensible Christian world and life view. Thank you, Michael, and thank you very much, everyone.